Sometimes our journey towards greater self-awareness seems slow and ponderous, and other times life decides to hit the fast-forward button and give us a can't-miss catalyst for profound change. No matter which happens to you, both involve conversations—conversations conversations we have with ourselves and those that we have with others—and the quality of those conversations shapes our life satisfaction. Our question this episode: How can we boost our conversational intelligence from the inside out? Welcome to episode forty-seven of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me today. In this episode, we're going to hear from a man who experienced that can't-miss catalyst for change in a way that I hope none of you listening ever have to live through. In the first part of our conversation, we focus on the destructive self-talk that he learned how to move through. Then we shift a bit to discuss the basics of conversational intelligence, which increases our capacity to build trust and connection with others. Remember to stay with me after my chat with Michael for some quick closing thoughts and your call to action. Michael O'Brien is the Chief Shift Officer at Peloton Coaching and Consulting. He elevates successful corporate leaders by preventing bad moments from turning into bad days. His award-winning, best-selling memoir, Shift: Creating Better Tomorrows, chronicles his last bad day and near-death cycling accident recovery journey. He has shared his inspirational story and transformation from human doer to human being at work and at home on the TEDx stage and with multiple Fortune 500 companies. If you want to learn more about Michael and his work, as well as find links to the resources we mentioned in this episode, I invite you to visit howcanisaythis.com. From there, you can also access past episodes, submit a communication question for a reply in a future episode, subscribe learn how to leave a review, and offer feedback. Hi, Michael. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I'm delighted to have this new conversation with you. Uh, Likewise, Beth. I can't wait to have our conversation. I just love the work that you're doing and stressing the importance of having better conversations. So I can't wait for this. Awesome. I'm really excited. Oh, thank you. Me too. I want to start with what sounds like it's a downer, but actually I don't think it totally is. (laughs) Um, I want to start with your last bad day. What happened and what shift did you experience in the process that made it your last? Well, so yes, it, it can seem like a little bit of a downer. It starts off rough, but the ending is is wonderful. So my last bad day mm-hmm. happened July 11, 2001. I was out in New Mexico. I live in New Jersey, went out to New Mexico for a company meeting. And I decided to take my bicycle out to get some exercise. Some of the guys took their golf clubs, as you know, people do at some of these corporate offsites. I took my bike because I've been an avid cyclist going all the way back to my high school days. And I thought I was I thought I was the smartest one at the meeting. I was going to get some exercise, avoid the hotel gym. It was an offsite, so they're going to torture us with PowerPoint between Monday and Friday. So I was like, <laughs> I'm going to get some vitamin D and cross New Mexico off the states I've ridden my bike. And on the fourth lap, I found this lap path that went out the back of the hotel, up the main drag. It was about two miles in length. I thought if I did 10 laps, 20 miles, it'd be a good workout. And on the fourth lap, I came around to bend And there was a Ford Explorer going about 40 miles an hour coming right at me. He had 
cross into my lane fully, like mm. fully there. Yeah. And I looked at him and I was like, well, he's going to move. He's going to see me. He's going to move. And he didn't move. And, and I just kept on repeating, you're going to move, you're going to move. And he never moved. And the next thing I knew, I was going right into his grill. I remember the sound of me hitting his grill into mm. the windshield. I went to the screech of the brakes they made when it came to a, obviously a sudden stop. Cause I, I popped a hole through the windshield. That's how hard I hit the truck. And then the thought I made when I came to the asphalt below, and of course, I got knocked unconscious. I finally regained consciousness when all the EMTs arrived. And I knew, I just, I knew like my life was in the balance, uh, just based on the energy of the accident scene. And I just remember telling myself, don't fall asleep, stay awake, don't fall asleep. Because I thought if I fell asleep, that I would lose control over the situation, as crazy as that sounds. But I thought I could control the situation. And mm-hmm. and they eventually called the helicopter to take me to Albuquerque. It was a 19-minute flight. And as I got onto the helicopter, I promised myself that if I lived, and I knew that was in question, that life would be different. I would stop chasing happiness. Mm-hmm. And then off to the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque and their trauma center, I went and Luckily, I had an excellent medical team that saved my life and saved my leg. I broke a whole bunch of everything, including when the left femur shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery of my left leg. So on at the accident scene, I was in essence sort of in the process of bleeding out. The doctors told my wife later, had I been 10 years older or not in shape, I probably would have died before I got to the hospital. Wow. And so right there in the in the throes of life in the balance, you said, I'm going to stop chasing happiness. Yeah, it was a little bit of a whisper, you know, and I don't know where it really Where did that come from. (laughs) I don't I don't know, to be honest, I wish I had a really great answer. Although I was chasing happiness. And you know, 2001, this is before social media, this was before FOMO was something, right? The fear of missing out. Yeah, Yeah. And nowadays, it's so easy to compare what we have against everyone else, right, at work or just in life, because everyone sort of puts their life on display through a filter on social media. Well, back then, I had some some old conversations with myself in terms of what it meant to be a leader. I thought leaders had all the answers. So I pretended I had to be Superman at work, having all the answers, and I would pour the stress inside and wasn't having a really great conversation with myself when I didn't have the answer. I also thought at home I had to be Superman because that's what, you know, um, providers do or husbands or dads. Mm -hmm. You know, our girls were really young at the time, three and a half years old and seven months old. So I thought I had to be Superman at work. I didn't want to necessarily expose my worry or share my worry with my family because I didn't want them to be worried that I was worried. Yeah. So I just poured a whole bunch of stress inside and I was on this chase. I, I was I was happy. It wasn't like I was depressed or unhappy. I just thought I'd be happier once I got promoted or got the big raise or bought the stuff or the meeting was over. And I was on this sort of just constant chase that, you know, after like these external merit badges, if you will, that once I get it, I'll be happy. But when I got them, I was happy for a bit. And then like any great vapor finish line, it disappeared and back to chasing I went. Mm -hmm. So I knew enough in that moment, I guess maybe deep down inside that I was sort of chasing happiness throughout most of my early professional life. I thought I was following the script that society wanted me to follow. But 
I wasn't living life with much awareness. I was just sort of just going almost like a, like a hamster on its wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I think of that running to stand still. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. Well, and as you're describing this, um, I'll be happy when <laughs> I think, you know, so many of us have that thought and I think of it as like conditional happiness and it stops us from being happy in the moment. Like you said, I was happy, but I kept feeling like there was more. So there's like content, happy in the moment, and then there's chasing happy. And we can forget that happiness can and does exist in the current moment. We don't have to chase it. It's already there if we are open to it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I tell you, like, we can be happy in the moment, but we don't have to be content, right? We don't have to, like, lower our standards. Right, right. I can be happy for what I have right now and still be eager or still be thirsty to learn more and do more and, you know, grow as a human being, grow as a professional. So being happy in the moment isn't about, well, I've, I've stopped pursuing things to broaden my scope or my awareness or my impact on others, try to help change more lives. It has nothing to do with that at all. It's just mm-hmm. being grateful for the moment that we have. Yeah. And, and in that way, in the sort of whole spirit, like we go where our eyes go, it's, it's easy to find gratitude then. Yeah. And focus in on the things that we have and still can do. I, I sort of fell into that trap of focusing on what I didn't have in the early part of my recovery. And then from there, we can do a much better job building mm-hmm. and seeing life through a lens of abundance, as opposed to how it is today for a lot of people looking through life through like loss or scarcity and fear which sort of just invites more of that to pop into our lives. And, and then we don't realize the type of success and joy that we, we most want to feel yeah. or most want to have. Yeah. Well, that's a great segue to my next question, um, because, you know, that focusing on what we don't have instead of what we do have and the messages that we're sending ourselves I've been finding myself using this phrase, death by a thousand cuts lately. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's one of the ways that we self-inflict wounds to ourselves, negative self-talk. And it's usually not one big moment when we beat ourselves up and we're forever changed, but rather it's those tiny little cuts that we give ourselves day in and day out that we barely even notice. We might not notice it on a conscious level, but our brain notices and it stores all of those thoughts, right? And and pretty soon before we know it, we're in this kind of bad or dark place. And you strike me, you know, you, you haven't talked about, you know, what is explicitly about like what kind of self-talk was happening for you when you had that accident and what you noticed. So I'm curious about your experience around that and what tips you have for noticing and breaking that cycle of unhealthy self-talk. I think this is such an important topic, Beth. I think back before my accident, like the self-talk was, I was just never enough, right? So I was, mm-hmm. maybe I wasn't the brightest, you know, wasn't enough as a student, maybe wasn't enough as a professional. I think that sort of like, like fueled this whole chase of like things. It's like, well, once I get all these things, I will be enough. And I didn't want, I didn't want to share this with folks. You know, this was before, you know, vulnerability became a thing. And we had Ted.com and Brene Brown and, and her wisdom and, and her work. Mm-hmm. But a lot of 
a lot of my self-chatter or self-narrative, the death by a thousand cups, cuts, as you referenced, was like, you're never enough. You're never enough. You're never enough. And so, which is a, a version of shame. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't realize that was the conversation I was having until really my accident gave me this one massive pause button to really examine my life. And I think that's where we have to start is when we're so busy being busy, we're so busy on our hamster wheel, we're not really even aware of what we're telling ourselves. You know, it's there, as you mentioned, the brain remembers, but we may not even be conscious of it. So by connecting with your breath and just slowing down, which is something that I learned to do through my recovery, just like the how important our breath is. And it can be mindfulness, it can be meditation for those that want to step into a practice of meditation. For for me, that gave me more awareness of, of the conversations I was having. And the natural tendency is to push them away and to force them down. But what I realized and what I discovered about stress was that when I was trying to restrict it, as I was pouring it into my body, well, what happens when we try to force something down or restrict it, it pops back up with probably with more force. Mm-hmm. And the same could be said with some of that inner critic, that self negative self-talk. When we try to push it down, sometimes it comes back up even more powerfully. And it always comes back up in our most important moments when we don't want it to come back up. So for me, it was about awareness. What is the conversation I'm having with myself? Acceptance that that's a natural part of just being a human being. And it's there for a reason. It believes that it's there to keep you safe. Exactly. Yeah. And then and instead of pushing it away, some people will say, well, I try to make it my friend. <laughs> I don't go that far, but I try to create some space for it. So it just sits there. And now I have a choice. I have agency to act in a way where I can follow that voice. I know enough now that that's not going to bring out the best of me. Or I can try to shift my perspective. But I think the the most important thing is first just slowing down. We're so busy chasing shiny objects and maybe not doing the things that truly matter that we're not necessarily living our life with the type of awareness I think that we can live our life with. And with more awareness, we can have a better conversation, not only with ourselves, but with other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, slowing down and getting quiet enough to hear that self-talk is really important. And I and I wonder how, you know, what the correlation is between people who meditate and stick with it versus um, say, oh, it's not for me, between those who believe that, oh, I'm supposed to quiet all my thoughts <laughs> instead of it being a space where you slow down and you can observe those thoughts and just let them float by, not getting attached to them, and how that could actually be, at least in the beginning, part of the purpose or the gift of that meditation. It's not about, I need to empty my mind. It's, I need to notice what's going on in my mind because I'm so busy all the time that I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with the first session I had that I'll call it the beginning of my meditation practice. When I had my big aha in the hospital where I knew if I was going to get my body right, I had to get my mind right. Mm-hmm. Like I one would say, well, that wasn't a really good session because my mind was cluttered. Yeah. And I talked to a friend and, and he said, well, that's sort of the beginning of it. Right. So that's mm-hmm. you we have to get through that part of the resistance. That's natural. It, meditation isn't about blanking your mind. It's 
having some awareness of what's popping into your mind and almost sort of like a bicep curl, like, you know, sort of being able to release it and then go back to what you want to focus in on, like, like your breath. So for a lot of people, a lot of type A people, executives I coach, they're like, I can't do that. Like, I'm going to lose my edge. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's more about like really paying attention to like, what are you telling yourself? So you can keep your edge or maybe even sharpen it. Yeah. And for me, I really credit it to helping me have my last bad day, you know, and I still, a lot of people are like, well, last bad day, it's like unicorns and rainbows. And I'm like, well, it's, <laughs> it's not, that's not what I mean by it. I, I, to me, it's the day where you decide you're going to live life differently. And for me too, it's and what I share with other people is I don't want bad moments. And I certainly have my bad moments during the course of the day or challenging moments or moments filled with different emotion. I only want to give them as much energy as they deserve. Mm -hmm. So often with when our lives are so busy, it's so easy for a bad moment, like a commute or a meeting or what have you to turn into a bad day. Yeah. So when we're more mindful or more aware, we can let some of those bad moments sort of just go by. Yeah. And we, we don't run the risk of them turning into something bigger that can not only ruin our day, but sometimes it can ruin a whole week or even a month. And then you're in a funk that you don't know how to get out of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Molehills and mountains and all that good stuff. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to, you, you started to uh, go down this path and I took us down another one. So I'm going to go back. And um, you talked about how having these in, you know, addressing how we talk to ourselves internally affects the kinds of conversations we have externally. And one of the things that I'm really interested that you provide is coaching in the area of conversational intelligence, which is based on the work of Judith Glazer. What does neuroscience tell us about how to have more constructive and generative conversations? Well, Judith's work tells us a lot about what's firing in our good old brain and body of ours when we have conversations that really connect. You know, we get a, a nice little bolt of like, the serotonin and oxytocin, which is sometimes labeled as the hug hormone, mm. right? So that's mm -hmm. the type of good energy and good hormonal release that builds tribes or my word for tribe is the Peloton, like builds community, whether you're talking about your personal life or your professional life. But so often some of her work suggested that nine out of 10 of our conversations miss the desired target. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't connect in the way that we want to. And certainly as a society, we're not really having a great conversation. We're sort of running to our corners and trying to out shout each other based on our beliefs and our worldviews. And when that happens, then you get the stress hormones, like maybe like adrenaline or cortisol. And there's a stress response and you can get into a fight and flight mode. And we know when we're in, where we're activated that way, we tend not to connect as well as, you know, if we were in a different mode and we don't listen as well, we don't see, we don't listen. Some of our senses are muted and we miss the connection. Mm -hmm. And when we get triggered like that, you know, our body doesn't necessarily go back to steady state right away. It takes some time for that to like, sort of like get through our system and then we've missed an opportunity to really listen, to connect and understand with each other, even when we happen to disagree. And that's one of the things I share with the people I work with is conversational intelligence isn't about totally kumbayaing it and agreeing on everything. Like we will have debate, you know, as we try to solve really complex problems and how we move forward as a country, as a planet, 
So sometimes we're going to disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. We can hear someone else's perspective and go back and forth and ask questions of discovery. And when that happens, we can build more trust. Mm-hmm. And when we have more trust, we can explore into new areas that might be a little sensitive or touchy. And, you know, we can even get into some of the stuff that causes our internal conversation to go a little haywire. So I love Judith's work because, you know, she sort of is the author of this, is that everything happens through conversation. When you think about like whatever is happening at home or at work or points in between, it's all driven by conversation. And if we can have better conversations with each other, then we can make the planet a much better planet. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I agree 100%. And this came up um, this past weekend, somebody was mentioning about having kind of difficult conversations. And they said, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up. (laughs) And it seems like it's, it's a little bit a ways away, but I don't think it's too early to be thinking about it. From what you've just told us, What are some very simple things that people can keep in mind when they are put in these situations with perhaps family members, people they love, that they might disagree with? Yeah, and with this Thanksgiving, too, with an election coming up next year. Yes. And the election (laughs) will be over, so Uncle Bob might have a different view on who to vote for than you, right? So. Mm -hmm. So to keep some peace in the family, I think the first step is how do I approach Thanksgiving or any type of difficult conversation with as much empathy and openness and curiosity as possible? Often we approach these conversations as a way like I have to win the conversation. I have to I have to show the other person that I'm right and they're wrong for seeing the world as they see it. Mm-hmm. So instead, we can still share our perspective, but with like a mode of curiosity and empathy. I think that's the first step because we pick up on each other's vibe. Like we've all been in situations where we're talking to someone and like there's something about it that just doesn't feel right. It's almost like they're trying to convince us about something and we feel like we're on the defensive or we feel like we need to like, you know, go on the attack, you know, to sort of defend our turf. And those conversations never really go anywhere, you know, in a, in a productive sense. So I would start with the you know ability to create a empathetic and curious situation, whether it's at Thanksgiving or in the workplace. I think it's good to put down our devices. Mm-hmm. Our devices have become, whether it's a laptop or a phone, almost like armor that puts up a barrier between us and the person that we want to communicate with. And we might be just like using our computer just to type notes and stuff like that. But the other person doesn't necessarily know that. And what it signals is like, hey, I don't have your full attention. Mm -hmm. You're not fully connecting with me. And I don't think you're really listening to what I have to say. So that's the next step. And then there's a a little acronym that I like called LAVA, L-A-V-A. So think about conversation flowing just like lava flows. But lava flows, sometimes it can be destructive. In this case, the conversation lava approach is much more productive and and beneficial. And the L stands for listen intuitively, listen actively, listen to what's being said and maybe not what's being said through tone and body language. The first A stands for acknowledge. And we like to be heard. So acknowledging what the other person has to say is a great way to say, hey, I hear you. We're on the same page. I may not agree with you, but I hear what you're saying. The V is validate and say, hey, you know, you're welcome to your own opinion. 
you know, I have a point of view that's valid and so do you as just a, as another human being. Mm-hmm. And the final A in lava is ask, ask open-ended questions, you know, classic journalism, the who, what, when, where, how, and why, if it's the right tone. And one question I love, Beth, is the question of permission. So often we get into conversations and people have a problem or a challenge and we want to be quick with giving them the answer. We want to tell them what to do to show that we're really bright and we're really smart. That question of permission sounds like this, like, hey, I have a, a thought or two about this topic or I have some observations. Do you mind if I share those with you now? And it's just a great way just to let the other person in the conversation know that, hey, we might switch roles. I've been listening to you right now. I have something to say. I have something to offer but I'm only going to offer it if you're receptive to it. Mm-hmm. And this works well with Uncle Bob at Thanksgiving. It works really well for any of the listeners that happen to have teenagers. I've done this with my daughters. And sometimes at dinner, they come home from school and they talk about the day and there's a problem. And dear old dad wants to solve the problem. <laughs> and so early on, and my wife is the one I should really give credit to this because early on in our marriage, she told me, like, listen, sometimes, Michael, I just want you to listen to me. I don't need you to solve my problem for me. Yeah, exactly. And we do that with our spouse. We do that with our kids. And, you know, sometimes I would ask my kids, hey, dad's got some advice. You want to hear it? And quite often my girls will be like, nope, I don't want to hear it. We can solve it. I just needed to let it out. And I wanted to talk about it. And I was like, cool. But too often because of ego or what have you, we love to like, way in. And if we can just ask that question of permission a little bit more frequently, we can change how our conversations flow. Absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the game changers for my husband and I, um, or for me, my husband and me. Um, <laughs> that um, when one of us has had maybe a rough day, or maybe something great has happened, you know, or we just need to process something to remember to ask in the beginning, how can I support you? You know, would you like for me to listen or do you want me to problem solve with you or feedback or what's going to help the most? And that gives that person an opportunity to think about, yeah, what what do I need? And then to be able to say it and then we don't get into tension around one of us then leaping in and saying, oh, have you thought about this? Did you try that? You know, oh, this worked for me or that. And oh, yeah. We think we're being helpful, but like you said, it's, there's ego there. And in the moment, it doesn't feel like it, but that's kind of really what's maybe at the root of it. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, we don't necessarily want to think that we're egotistical, but as human beings, we all have we a little are. bit of, yeah, we all have a little bit of ego running through our bloodstream from time to time. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Well, this has been awesome, Michael. And um, I, I hope maybe I'll have you back because I know that there's a lot more that we can talk about, especially as we get towards election time. But in the meantime, how can people learn more about you and your work? Thank, well, thanks for asking, Beth. And yeah, I would love to come back and talk about how we navigate Thanksgiving and just politics, right? Because that's going to be part of our national debate and conversation over the next year or so. So the best way to get in contact with me is to go to michaelobrienshift.com. And there, you know, if people want to connect with me on social media, I love it. Uh, They can learn a little bit more about what I do and take my wealth language quiz and even sort of explore my new book that's out there to help them prevent bad moments from turning into a bad day. So, but that's, that's the best place to start is just MichaelO'BrienShift.com. 
Awesome. Well, I will make sure that those links are in the episode webpage. And um, I encourage people to get in touch with you. And I am grateful for your generous sharing and, and grateful for everything that you're doing in the world to make better conversations. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Beth. Before I share my closing thoughts, I want to offer a quick reminder that if you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues, subscribe if you haven't already, and leave a review. Those are all great ways that you can bring more courageous conversations into the world. My brain was firing in so many different directions during this conversation that it was challenging to pick up just one thing to offer as a final thought. What I keep coming back to is Michael's lava metaphor. Remember, L stands for listen, A is for acknowledge, V is for validate, and A is ask open-ended questions. This came up as we chatted about conversational intelligence, but I think that it's something that we can apply to the first part of our conversation about negative self-talk. After all, it's challenging to listen, acknowledge, validate, and ask others if we don't do it for ourselves. Here's your call to action. The next time you find yourself in a negative self-talk loop, take a moment to slow down, observe it, and listen. Get quiet enough to really hear what you're telling yourself. For instance, one of my negative self-talk loops is, I don't have enough credibility to do that. Whatever that is, is usually related to my work, but it can creep into other activities that I enjoy, such as photography. So I listen closely enough to hear the self-talk and connect it to what's going on in my life. Then I acknowledge it. Just like if I was talking to someone else, I say, I hear you. That's all the acknowledgement has to be. It's slowing down enough to give it space to be heard. Then I validate it. It might not seem like it's a good move saying, hey, you're right. And that's not what validate means in this case, as Michael pointed out. It's saying that I have a right to my perspective. Thinking it doesn't mean it's true. It just means that I'm human. Most of our self-talk, if you boil it down to its essence, can be translated into, I don't have enough, or I'm not enough. I'm not good enough, smart enough, worthy of love, belonging, connection. So the validation response in my case might be, sounds like you feel like you're not good enough, or sounds like you're questioning your credibility. It's simply a reflection of that thought that doesn't judge. It's a, huh, it's curious that you feel that way. The final step of asking open-ended questions is what pulls you out of the darkness and into the light. In my case, I might ask, what are your options? What would happen if you did it anyway? How would it feel not to do it? Or what's true? Those are all questions that push against the initial assumption that I have no credibility and remind me that credibility doesn't just happen. It's the result of taking action when there is no credibility so that credibility can eventually be established. After all, the people we now see as credible all had to start from zero. Going through the lava process of listen, acknowledge, validate, and ask gives you a reality check, and it can help to flip that self-talk from destructive to constructive. 
Finally, notice if you're letting small bad moments take the wind out of your sails. I just had one last night that really upset me for about an hour before I was able to let it go. I acknowledged what happened, I validated my feelings, and because the situation left me struggling to figure out what I could have done differently, I asked myself, how can you find out what you could have done differently? That put me in a more proactive, problem-solving mindset that allowed me to release the bad moment. And just like Michael said, as we learn to do this, it doesn't mean we'll never have another bad moment or another bad day. We'll just become more skilled at moving quickly through those moments and days and transforming them into learnings or actually non-events. This is Beth Bilo, and you have been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you for joining me and Michael for this conversation today. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.